Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. We're living at a time where there are three main issues that we all need to address. Uh, the first issue is climate change. The second issue is economic inequality. And the third issue of our time that gets less media coverage, I think, than climate change and economic inequality is the decay of intimacy in our own bodies, in our hearts, in our relationships, and you could say that the atrophy of intimacy in our collective life is really the decay of democracy. And so tonight I'm going to explore what the traditions that I've been trained in have to say about these issues of our time, because I feel like if we can't tell a new story that inspires people to really address these issues head on, then every exotic spiritual practice that we're involved in is going to be a passing fetish or fashion. So, what can we do? I'm going to suggest tonight that to deal with these three issues, climate change, economic inequality, and the decay of intimacy, there are three things that we can do. The first is we need to be able to stop. And this really has two different components. One is we all need to stop internally. I think in an age of Instagram and 140 character tweets and uh, media constantly reporting on scandals and politicians that don't seem that inspiring. People are really looking for depth. And I think people's need for depth is palpable. And the first way that we need to find depth is that we have to be able to stop to stop the momentum of overthinking and judgment, especially self-judgment, that goes on in our own minds and hearts. But the second component of stopping is that just taking care of your inner 
potential for greed or your internal potential for anger is not enough. We also have to deal with institutional forms of violence. And a spiritual practice that's just focused on me is, I think, one that can blow away very easily when we need to address real cultural issues. So one way we also need to stop is we need to stop cooperating with systems of violence that keep doing damage to our families and our communities and our Earth. So stopping has these two sides. And everything that I'll say tonight has these two sides. That I think the test of a deep commitment to life is that all the principles we're involved in can heal both internally and also culturally. So we need to stop. Second, we need a practice. I think we all like to pick up books about stopping, and then we read them, or half of them, <laughs> and then two minutes later, we're just as neurotic as when we bought the book. <laughs> and I really don't think it's important whether your practice is a meditation practice, or a dance practice, or a music practice, or an art practice. I think the most important thing is that we mentor in something for a long time until it becomes a craft that roots us in an embodied way in our lives. Something that connects us to making ethical choices, something that keeps us honest, something that keeps us focused on living a life where we become clear about our intentions. You hear this a lot phrased these days as mindfulness practice. And mindfulness these days is presented as a practice of paying attention, which I think is fair. It is a practice of giving our attention. But as mindfulness practice matures, it's not just about paying attention. It's about paying attention to the quality of your intention, the quality of your attention. In other words, to pay attention to your intentions. And that way, it's not just about sitting still watching your own breathing, but it's about all day paying attention to your motivations in the choices that you make with your body, with speech, which is where I get in most of tr my trouble, and also with the patterns in your mind. So we need to stop, we need to practice, and I think the most radical thing you can ever do in a culture is to tell the story that's not being told. Because I think right now, mostly what we hear from the religion, uh, religious leaders, I was gonna say the religion department, <laughs> is that we need to stop and we need to practice. But I think activist DNA is a double helix and it really needs two things. On the one hand, we need to stop and we need to practice. But on the other hand, we need better stories. And we're a culture that's addicted 
to a certain story about success, about energy, about oil, and we all know they're outdated. I don't know anybody who's really addicted to oil. We're told all the time we're addicted, but who like drives to the pump, you know, <laughs> excited about oil? We're not addicted to oil. We're addicted to a narrative. And the sign of being addicted to a narrative is that there's no room to tell another story. You see? Now, I'll get into this as the evening goes on, but one thing that I'm starting to realize about stories is that when there's a dominant story, the way it gets replaced is by not inventing a new story, but paying attention to the stories that aren't being told because they're not making it into mainstream culture. In other words, the new story is already here, but it's in the margins. And we have to pay attention to the stories being told in the margins because that's the next story. We don't need to invent it. And if you're waiting around for the next big meta-narrative about what to do with your life, you're still going to be caught in the same addiction. Right? So, we need to stop. We need a practice, because you can't stop without a practice. And when your practice gets working, and this is my theory about practice, is one sign that your practice is getting deeper is that it makes you ask deeper questions. That's how you know the practice is working, is that the questions you begin to explore about your life become deeper. And when you study with a teacher, or you study good teachings, the purpose of teachers and teachings and community is that when you have a good question, they drive the question deeper. They don't provide answers. They drive the question deeper into your heart. So it becomes more meaningful, knowing that the response to the question can only come from you. A monk was once asked, what is the core of spiritual practice? And he responds, an appropriate response. Another monk named Basho is asked, what is spiritual practice? And he answers, whatever's needed. So we need to tell a new story, a story that's responsive to what's needed in our society right now. So tonight, I want to suggest uh, several new ways of thinking about the practices we're engaged in so that we can offer something real to a culture that's really suffering and in need of a new narrative. So, Here is the new story. First, this is it. Imagine that. Imagine that this moment is it. So we live in a post-metaphysical era. Our lives are not dependent on, made from, another realm. 
maybe there's no other world after, beyond, or behind this one. This may not be so popular in British Columbia. <laughs> Our lives are impermanent. We talk a lot about the present moment, but if you try and grasp the present moment, you'll see that there is no present moment. There's just this. The quality of the light in the room right now, our bodies digesting dinner, arriving here together. There's just this. It's so easy to miss. But because when you pay attention to this, you see that it's impermanent, there's something in our mind that is scared of impermanence. Have you noticed this? And so, because we know that the physical reality is impermanent, so we use our imagination to get bigger than the physical, to get metaphysical, to create a story about permanence in a reality that's impermanent. And I think the real courage of having a practice is to be able to tune in, make contact with what's arising in the present moment, and simultaneously not hold on to it. So how do you have the courage to turn to what's arising, even when what's arising is painful, and simultaneously to be intimate with it without holding on to it? So I think this is the key task of practice. So, first point, this is it. Life has no outside. When we're born, we don't come into this life. And when we die, we don't exit life. At death, we die into life. Death is not some sphere that's separate from life. If you take a body and you watch it decompose, this is a practice that's done in the Theravada Buddhist tradition in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness. They leave this one out in the Mindfulness Space Stress Reduction. <laughs> they eat a raisin instead. But the Buddha's instruction is actually to watch a corpse decomposing over 14 days. And when you watch a corpse decompose, its body swells, the heat element leaves, the air element leaves, and then it gets so swollen that, and one of the reasons why it's swollen is because maggots start eating your body from the inside. And then at some point, they all start coming out of your mouth. Uh -huh. If you look at a corpse as it's decomposing, it actually looks more alive than a body that's alive. You see? So we spend so much time focusing on having a life that is separate from death that we keep life and death as two different things, right? But at what point do you become born? I mean, if you're ever with someone during pregnancy, it's not like there's something that's not alive and then suddenly it's alive. 
And at death, it's exactly the same way. Life has no outside. There's just this. Karma. The word karma means causality. It comes from the root kur, which is where you get the English word creativity. So karma literally means what you're going to do with what you've got. What are you going to do with the ingredients you have? Right? Here's this room. We have these ingredients. What are we going to do with these ingredients? But karma is not something that happens to you. This is this idea that's kind of absurd that we've inherited, that karma happens to me as if there's like spiritual air miles you get when you do good things or bad things. That's actually linked into this idea that there's a death that takes you out of this life. But actually, all you are is karma. Your genetics, your fascia, your muscles, your memory, your brain, every time you take an action, the action has an effect. I always say this is the key teaching for teenagers, that everything you do has an impact. You do nothing, it has an impact. You do something, it has an impact. But that impact is what you are. It's not separate from you. So the key teaching of karma is a teaching of non-duality, is that karma is something you are. You are a bundle of causes and effects. Equal stakes. Your life impinges on other lives because of karma. The choices that you make when you eat, the choices that you make when you make purchases, the choices that you make when you vote, but the everyday choices you make when you speak and when you love and when you hate and when you fall down and you can't get back up again. All of these choices impinge on other people. I like to tell the story of being on retreat and my uh, teacher at the time had a, an elderly student who was ill. And he came the first day and he said, could I come and sit on the retreat with you? Now a silent retreat is pretty demanding. And he was ill and he was elderly and it was hard for him to attend the retreat. So he came and he sat at the beginning of the day and I thought to myself, he's not gonna last very long. Anyways, he sat all day. Then uh, we thought he was just gonna be there in the morning, but the second day he showed up, the third day he showed up and he sat the whole retreat, which was very inspiring. And at the end of the retreat, somebody said to him, you said you were just gonna come uh, at the beginning of the retreat and we could see that it was very painful for you to get up and sit down on the floor. Why did you stay for the whole retreat? And he said, uh, when I sat down, there was a young person sitting next to me uh, who was in his early 20s, who was so fidgety. So I said to myself, I'm going to sit beside him until he's still.
And this story always really stayed with me. We think so much of what we do for our practice is all about me. You see? And what I want to suggest in this articulation of another story is that you can't get happy by yourself. It's an oxymoron. A path towards joy, a path towards freedom, has to include other people. Life has limits, and we really need guardians and stewards of our biosphere. In British Columbia, where we are right now, <clears throat> indigenous communities are at the forefront of a resistance against a fossil fuel economy. They've been reminding us by ringing many alarm bells that climate change is actually a problem of overconsumption. And we're also being reminded that this issue of climate change is actually a social justice issue. And building bike lanes and buying better light bulbs is not going to heal. And it's not going to change our economic structure. So the interesting thing about climate change is it's actually a gem or a diamond. And it has many different sides. And as you start to look at the different sides of climate change, you see that every other issue is wrapped up in the issue of climate change. We call our economy capitalism. But we're not living in a capitalist economy. We're living in an extractivist economy. And if we're going to tell a new story, we have to stop drilling into the earth, and we have to start drilling deeper into our own imagination to create a new story that's inspiring and slowly moves us out of a fossil fuel narrative. Because, like I said earlier, we're not addicted to oil. Let's not believe that. Interdependence. Everything inter-exists. Everything is contingent. Everything. We inter-are. We inter-exist. Even as I look around this room, there is no seeing of this room independent of my eyes. There's no hearing of these sounds independent of these ears. It's not like there's a me in a skin bag that's looking out at this room. Even at the level of sensation, we inter-exist with sound and light and breathing and water. Our bodies are 75 to 80% water. So how you treat water is how you treat your body.
And water passes through our body every three days. So I just came from one of the Gulf Islands. So right now I'm Cascadian mountain water and have a little bit of Vancouver water in me. But by the end of the weekend, I will be Vancouver water. And when I go down to the water, it's not like there's a Michael going down to the ocean looking at the ocean. Maybe the reason why we love the ocean so much is because when you go to the ocean, it's ocean recognizing ocean. Everything is so intimately connected that there's no thing that we can call a thing. This goes under the umbrella of interdependence. But I think what it really means is intimacy. That the only way healing can happen is through intimacy. If you take one thing away from our evening tonight, it's this message that healing only happens through intimacy. Getting closer to the parts of ourselves we have a hard time being in relationship with. Healing in community happens when we start to have relationships with the people in our community that we treat like garbage. You don't have to look very far. Healing in family happens when people call us on our stuff that we don't want to look at and we have the courage to actually look at it. I remember one time <clears throat> going to have an interview uh, with a Zen teacher, and uh, he didn't speak English. This was in Japan. And I sat down across from him, and he looked at me and went like this. <laughs> so I pulled up a little closer to him, and then he said, so then I was really close to him. And then he said, that's good. That's practice. And then he rang his little bell. And that was the end of our interview. <laughs> but isn't that the truth of what uh, we need to do to have any kind of practice? I mean, if you have an art practice, isn't that the work of being able to see more clearly? Is just come closer. I moved from Toronto to British Columbia because I had this idea that I wanted to have a deeper relationship with the natural world. Well, you can't just have a deeper relationship with the natural world. It actually takes a long time. So every day there's this amazing trail that I go on. And now, slowly, the trees are saying, come closer. In meditation communities, language is considered the enemy. Have you noticed this? If you are following your breath and you start thinking, you're made to feel that thinking is so bad that you should get rid of it at all costs. So I'm here to tell you thinking is OK. 
and also that we're human beings and we swim in language. And sometimes contemplative practice is posed so much as a kind of anti-intellectual game. But we need language. We swim in language, and we need to recognize that the words we use can heal, and they can also really cause harm. Also, that our perception is determined by language. You see this a lot in uh, recent studies that have been coming out in linguistics around how young kids who read a lot seem to have a better handle on their afflictive emotions. Because when difficult emotions arise, they can name them and they can articulate them more clearly. So the language we have, the unconscious stories we have, determines what we perceive. There are sometimes in meditation practice moments that are unconditioned by language, but once you notice them, they're conditioned again by language. And the more stories we have, the more tools we have in our toolbox. I was saying earlier that one sign of addiction is that you keep telling the same story over and over again. But another sign of being addicted to a narrative, and I really think that addiction at bottom is addiction to a narrative. And one sign that there's addiction to a narrative is that your imagination isn't there. And, you know, psychotherapists always love when someone comes into an office and goes, I'm so sick of telling this story again. <laughs> because we know that psychologically, a change in language becomes a change in one belief system. Eight. Life continues, but you're going to die. Life continues, but this me that I'm so invested in, I have no idea what's going to happen at the moment of death. If you're ever, if you have the fortune, I think, as a young person, of being present with somebody who doesn't want to die, you can really see how no matter how much you hold on through resentment, anger, the inability to forgive, at some moment your body just lets go. And in our yoga practice, every day we lie down for 10 minutes. And one of my teachers, Patabi Joy, said the hardest practice is shavasana. Practicing to become a corpse. You lie down for 10 minutes, and you practice dying every day for 10 minutes. You lie down, and the first thing you do is you let go of your breathing. So you relax your breathing until you can just feel your body breathing. And if you've had a lot of trauma or you have unresolved grief, you start to notice that there's a lot of holding in your breathing. 
and you work maybe for months, just relaxing until you can lie down, which is the same instructions you give someone who's dying, to just let the body breathe. And then you get back up again with a little less clinging. We are fiction. We are stories we tell ourselves. And we say in our culture that what most of us are scared of is the moment of death. But I don't think that's true. I think what we're scared of is that at the moment of death, we don't know what's going to happen to this fiction, this movie of me that we're so invested in. But if you can look at that every day, then you see that it's not a practice for dying. It's a practice of living. And when you're with somebody who's actively dying and is totally present, they're actually in the living place, not the dying place. They're totally alive. And for everyone else around them, oh, they're dying, they're dying, they're dying. But for the person dying, there's just moment, 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 moment. They're not dying, you see. It's just the story of me and the clinging that is the dying. This is my favorite slide. <laughs> Embrace life. When you turn towards life, there is suffering. When you turn towards life, the suffering that you meet is not just your own suffering, but also the suffering of other people. And when suffering arises, there's only one way to work with it, which is to turn towards it. When pain arises, we turn towards pain. When sadness arises, we turn towards sadness. When boredom or loneliness arise, we turn towards our loneliness, and we become intimate with it. The samadhi of loneliness, the samadhi of boredom, the intimacy of anger, any mental state we can turn towards. And we learn that the core practice that we can engage in for a nonviolent society is turn, turn towards our own suffering and other people's suffering and really know it. Not to know it like uh, an intellectual analysis, but to know it like you know a piece of music. To really know suffering. However, when you turn towards suffering, Lena Dunham shows up in your kitchen. <laughs> when you turn towards suffering, craving arises. This is biological and cannot be negotiated. So, 
For all of you who have trained in a contemplative practice that tells you that craving causes suffering and that practice is about ending craving, this is biologically impossible. There are moments when we can work with craving so that it subsides. But every time you turn towards suffering, the human organism is designed to crave pleasure. We're built that way, you see? So the core of our practice, and I'm, I'm saying this to every single person in this room, is we have to be able to learn how to be with the energy of wanting without feeding it. We have to model this in our families. We have to model this in our communities. To be able to feel what craving feels like and be with the energy of craving, knowing that it never lasts more than five minutes. And to be able to ride out that lively wave of craving until it passes. And maybe that's the hardest thing. Because we crave pleasure when we turn towards pain. So embrace life knowing that when you turn deeply towards life, craving arises in the form of reactivity and in the desire for pleasure. And we all know that the thing desire loves most is more desire. <coughs> so how to embody craving, how to feel craving without acting on it, I think will cause our economic system to completely collapse. That's why soon this slideshow will be illegal in our country, because it's very bad for the gross domestic product. Because when you can take care of your cravings, you just don't buy so much. Freedom. The goal of practice is freedom. These days, all you hear about in terms of contemplative practice is happiness. How to get happy. A hundred years ago, if you could interview your great-grandmother, what most oppressed people was having to feel good or be good. If you talk to your grandmother about this or your great-grandmother about this, uh, a lot of people were really oppressed by having to be, be really good and look good. Mm -hmm. I think now what's impressing people tremendously is this idea that we're supposed to be happy all the time. And the baseline of our moods, we're told, is really a hyper-arousal, actually, which is a kind of manic condition, you see? So happiness is a byproduct of practice. Because in the absence of clinging, joy arises. But freedom is not based on feeling a certain way. 
If freedom was based on being happy, then when you were unhappy, you weren't free. But you can be in pain and you can be free. There's a psychological freedom that we can achieve in turning towards life without craving. And in the absence of craving, freedom arises, the freedom to choose. And to not be helmed in by the historic and compulsive reactivity, reactive patterns that um, are so programmed in us. We have two more. Nothing is inevitable. Because the self, like culture, is fiction, we are not a narrative that's heading towards a predetermined conclusion. Which is another way of saying, we can write the next chapter. You do not have to be the same person today that you were yesterday. But the thing is, what blocks our hearts more than anything is not allowing ourselves to have our own experience. Oh, this, this neediness I feel, oh, I'm not supposed to feel that. And when you can't allow yourself to have your own experience, you're not living your life. And then the next chapter is predetermined. You see? But nothing is inevitable. Last point. People ask a lot, is yoga one of the traditions I've trained in, a religion? Is Buddhism another tradition I've trained in, a religion? Or is it a new kind of psychotherapy? Well, I don't think that yoga and Buddhism are religions. I really think they're cultures. And they're cultures of awakening. And I think it's time that we let go of this idea of a personal religion or a personal transcendence and we replace it with a social awakening. Maybe the next awakening will be a social awakening. Instead of a privileged and private, isolated experience that a young man has under a tree. There's no doubt that we all have to work with our minds, and there's no doubt we all have habits in our heart that we really need to work with. But relationship is the key to awakening. And we can wake up in relationship and through relationship. So maybe the next awakening is a social awakening. The Vietnamese Zen teacher Thich Nhat Hanh uh, said a couple of years ago, the next Buddha will be Sangha. 
the next awakening will be community. My hope is that these practices and these narratives that I've suggested can form what I hope will be uh, key points in a practice that can allow us to wake up together and to exit this idea of an isolated me trying to get ahead and get happy for myself. As you become more sensitive in your own life, in your own heart, you start to feel more free. And as you feel more free, you start to feel the pain of others more deeply. And you start to feel the pain of our earth more deeply. And you start to feel the pain of animals more deeply. And there's no way out of that. So the only thing to do is to roll up your sleeves and go to work. Once you have all your basic needs met, you have privilege, you have a house, you have health, you have access to good food. Once you have all your basic needs met, there are only two things left to do. One, take really good care of yourself. And two, help other people. So thank you very much for listening. What I'd like to do now is to take a 10-minute break, and then we can come back.